0: This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories Boxes by Balia Keeney and The $200 Turd by Shane Nicely. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Boxes, written by Belia T. Keeney, read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 9 minutes, 45 seconds.
1: Boxes, by Belia T. Keeney. Sunday morning, barely dawn and a month out of Rayford. The house around him was still. Only the buzz of cicadas hummed through the open windows. Hector Lugo sipped on his café con leche, grateful for its frothy burn in his throat. He poured another cup and made himself go back up the stairs. At the end of the hall, his father's room waited for him. I haven't touched anything in there, Juliana told him. You do it. I just can't. His father's room had waited for him for over two years. Two years since his dad died, standing behind the counter in his little grocery store. Two years since Hector had beaten Dennis Fulton's face into a bloody pulp just for being one of the gangbangers. Never mind that Dennis hadn't been directly involved in the robbery. Two years of hard time in the Florida penal system. Hector rested one hand on the doorknob. His father's cadence voice in his head, gentle, his Cuban accent still heavy. Keep your nose clean. The door opened with a squeak of its hinges. Hector stood at the threshold, looking for ghosts. Dusty violet curtains hung at the windows. Hector noticed for the first time how shabby the bedspread was. The light blue chenille was frayed and worn bare in some places. Two flattened pillows lay like small dead things near the headboard. Hector stepped inside the room and took a deep breath. The room wasn't much bigger than his cell had been. He put down his coffee and trailed his fingers over items on the dresser. His father's leather-covered box still lay open where Hector had rifled through it long ago. Hector had looked for insurance papers, a checkbook, A deed to the house, anything that would be proof of an estate. His father's wedding ring was still there, one pair of cufflinks, a silver cross, and a few old photos of his mother. Inside the box, the cross gleamed. He picked up the photos and thumbed through them. They had faded. In one, a red dress his mother wore was now pink. In another, golden cowboy chaps on his own once chubby legs were yellow. He wore a ridiculous cowboy hat on his head and a baby-toothed smile. That must have been Halloween, when I was, what, four? Five? Mom was still alive. His mother died when he was six, just before Christmas, not long after Juliana was born. He could still remember her, but it was a strain after twenty years. He could see the thick black hair she always wore in a French twist, feel the rough cotton of her skirts, Mama. He remembered hours with her in the kitchen downstairs as she baked. Her brown sugar cookies were his favorite. Dad got quiet after she died. He changed. No more Batman games. Hector had loved the reruns of Batman he watched on TV. After his bath at night, sometimes his father would let him wear one of his clean t-shirts. Grown-up clothes for my grown-up boy. The shirt dangled like a dress from Hector's toddler body, but it felt like a cape. The cape of a superhero, a fighter, a protector. He would hum the silly show's theme song, run from the bed's headboard, and leap, flying into the air. All those years, he never dropped me. Hector opened the dresser drawers and tugged out the clothes. He stacked a half a dozen piles in the bed before noticing how stained and worn the cotton shirts were. The pants were ragged. I can't give these away. They look terrible. He unfolded one shirt with the Lugo's market logo on its breast. The once-wine shirt had bleached to a sickly brown red like blood. It looked so small. But it couldn't be. It was his father's size. He remembered his dad wearing it the week before, and his father was a big guy. Hector turned and looked in the dresser's mirror. He held up the shirt to his own chest. The sleeves dangled just past his shoulders, the outline of his body clearly visible beyond the fabric. He could never wear it. Dad wasn't a big guy, I just thought he was. Clear-headed beyond his grief, he could see his father now. A man of average height, that had too much belly, hairline receding, hands always dirty and rough. A man who worked hard to keep things together, with too little education. A fierce economy always nipping at his heels, and two children to raise alone. Hector pulled the shirt up to his face and breathed in. He couldn't smell anything beyond the musty scent of the dresser drawers. The tears came anyway. A few minutes later, he heard the floor creak as Juliana headed toward the bathroom. He hurriedly wiped his face with the shirt, wishing he had closed the door behind him. The toilet flushed, and Juliana stood in the doorway. How's it going? Her voice was sleep-rasped and froggy. Fine. He motioned to the pile of clothes, the closet door open. Are the boxes downstairs? Yeah, they're in the dining room. Want me to bring them up? sure he glanced around the room you should go through some of this yourself take what you want juliana crossed her arms her back stiff i don't want any of it what does that mean it just means i don't want it juliana shrugged a sulky dismissal it was stupid the way he died he never should have fought those robbers he was stupid hector's mouth dropped open what what did you just say He came around the bed, one fist clenched around a pair of socks. His vision fluttered red in front of him, heated. Look where it got him. Look where it got us, Hector. He left us alone. It was stupid. Her arms flailed as the hot words spilled out of her mouth. That freaking storm. I'm so sick of hearing about it. His teeth snapped on his tongue. He tasted blood, thick and salty. Juliana backed up to the door, alarm in her face. Her chin quivered. It hit Hector all at once. He really saw Juliana for the first time in two years. She'd grown up, her body curved and vulnerable. She wasn't just a kid's sister teasing her older brother anymore. This is a woman facing an angry man, a man who could hurt her. She's afraid of me. Please. He held out a trembling hand. Don't look at me like that. I'd never hurt you, Juliana. Please. He looked at his hands, hands that had nearly killed Dennis Fulton. Screw you, Hector. Hector. She slapped him so hard it stung. She turned too fast, bumped into the doorway, hit the wall with her palms, then ran down the stairs. Hector heard the front door open, then the screen door slam. Hector stood there, mouth agape. What the hell was that all about? He clumped down the stairs and brought the empty boxes up from the dining room. Church bells rang out and startled him, the nine o'clock service starting. He packed up three boxes, Filled them with clothes, some work boots, a few belts. He figured the Salvation Army would take it. The other stuff would go in the trash. Now that he was older, he could understand why his father had grown drawn and quiet. More often than not, his father had shushed him and pushed him away when Hector wanted to play. He learned to sit quietly and veroom his toy cars as his father rocked Juliana back and forth in her nursery. Once he looked up and saw his father crying, tears dripping on Juliana's face. His father kept the store going somehow, kept the house going somehow, and raised the two of them. A series of tenants moved in and out of the apartment in the backyard. By the time he was ten years old, Hector watched Juliana after school once his dad brought her home from church daycare. He learned to cook beans and rice and pollo and could make a passable flan for a kid. On Sundays, the only day the store was closed, the three of them spent countless hours in the garage. Hector grew to love the rickety building, the soft click of a socket wrench learning about cars from his dad. They began doing tune-ups and oil changes for folks in the neighborhood to make a little extra cash. When he turned 16, his dad presented Hector with a full mechanics toolbox, bright red, five feet tall, filled with gleaming equipment. Hector remembered the yellow Mack box truck that pulled up to the store every Friday, collecting payments. And now it was his turn to pay. He'd signed a mortgage for the house while he was in Rayford, gotten enough to get Juliana back into the junior college full-time. I can keep this going. I can do it. Let Juliana finish school, get her out of this place. Someplace better. He was nearly finished with the room. He piled the cardboard boxes by the door. Hector went back to the small closet, pushed through cheap metal hangers that clanged against his shoulders, and tugged down three cigar boxes he'd been hoping to find. These he wanted, even if Juliana didn't. The boxes had made the journey from Cuba with the family in the early 60s. His people constrained by castro free in florida the boxes themselves were empty still beautiful one was hand-painted a rich brown with bright red cigar bands dancing on the edges another was lush teal with yellow flowers and it smelled strongly of cigar a thick apple scent filled the closet when hector opened it the third had small figures of men carrying tobacco on their backs the deep orange faded to pale tangerine it must have been sitting in the sun at one time that one's my favorite. He put the cigar boxes on the dresser and looked around. He saw his reflection in the mirror. His bulk filled the glass. Time for this to be my room. Church bells pealed again in the distance. End.
0: Floridian Balia T. Keeney's stories have appeared in Florida Horror, Dark Tales from the Sunshine State, Word Not. Best Gay Romance, Men of Mystery, Clean Sheets, and Other Venues. The $200 Turd, written by Shane Nicely, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 8 minutes, 45
2: seconds. The $200 Turd. A petrified piece of feces on a china plate started the trend that would sweep the nation. It was one of those experimental art displays in either New York or L.A. You know, there was apparently a legal battle over it later that year, because apparently two artists both published identical pieces, down to the pale blue bones on the china pattern I heard, in different exhibits across the country from one another. Of course, everyone wanted the rights, and by then there were so many nearly identical bastardizations already floating around. This was after the feces had become such a huge hit. Not everyone cared at first. At first, it was just shit. But then Eileen Mosley, the president of a company renowned for its fashionable footwear, took notice of the display while out on the town with her international intellectual friends. Yes, she breathed, cocking her head to the side. The cream-colored leather of her glove touched her cheek just so. Later, there would be an intimate business meeting over wine between this woman and the artist, in which they would decide to use the feces in an advertisement aimed at college kids, preferably of the hippie variety. It was a sandal, and it was cheap. That appealed to hippies, didn't it? Anyway, Eileen had said it would emphasize nature, and everyone was an environmentalist right now. They'd love it. She'd have some B-list emerging actress play the lead in the commercial. Maybe a child actress trying to get back in. Oh yes, someone who had filled, butted into a real beauty. They'd grant instant one-hit wonderment to some lucky underground band with a substantial pre-existing fan base, and their director would have to be someone who had done acid before. It was just becoming mandatory in the film industry. Eileen budgeted for a 45-second slot, between a popular comedy about college relationships and a slightly more serious drama about a group of attractive, intelligent, witty, wealthy characters who all still managed to have problems for half an hour every night. The world blinked twice at that commercial and then went into pandemonium. Acronyms that represented moralistic organizations were prodding censorship boards with their canes, inciting action. Filth on TV was a clip of some woman's voice that became cliché to be played on news stations. I just don't feel comfortable, was another. So reporters were asking everyone what their opinion of the feces commercial was, because everyone had articles to write. Conveniently enough, a newscast dedicated to the commercial aired on a channel owned by the same company who owned Eileen's line of footwear. Some people tried to have a genuine opinion about it. Maybe they should only play it after 8 o'clock on weekdays, said one young actress with a hopeful nod. Others were vehemently anti-feces. Our society's becoming degenerate, one infuriated politician said. Others said it invaded their privacy, or it left them feeling violated. There is probably footage of someone literally crying about it if you want to scour the internet long enough. Then, a supermodel at the height of her popularity, mostly because of her recent and very well-done facial reconstructive surgery, decided to purchase and display some high-quality feces at a dinner party. Low odor, mellow color, fine yet firm texture. She boasted that the purchase came from a Nigerian goat farmer. The world blinked twice at the supermodel and then went into pandemonium. Some said she was a fashion victim on the way down. Some said she was a progressive thinker with some firm concepts or other ambiguous lingo such as that. I want to thank my sister, she was quoted as saying in her broken, enchanting Norwegian accent. It was really her all along. She does inner designing. She meant interior decorating, but the misspeak was cute. Farmers started feeding their livestock a high-fiber diet. Artists tried designing their own displays. More articles were being written every day. Some professional athlete was still disgusted by it in a magazine. The president made a joke. A feminist folk singer came out with the single, It Never Mattered, a bitter tribute to her ex featuring levitating feces in the music video. The lumps of waste used in the music video were then sold online for hundreds of dollars each, to a collector who wished to remain anonymous. And, of course, people were selling pictures of feces to magazines across the country, because you can't have an article about it without a picture of it. The funny t-shirts that soon cropped up spread like a rash through a hospital. Soon enough, there were bracelets decrying the anti-feces movement or the pro-feces movement, and then suddenly the shit-happens bumper sticker came back into vogue so jarringly the Western world barely had time to brace itself. By the time the two artists began the legal battle for claim to the original display rights, everyone already had their own copy and didn't know or care where it started, from ceramic sculptures to unscented rubber replicas to zen how-to guides and an increased social awareness of scat. Nobody cared where it started. They only knew that everyone had it, everyone was talking about it, and the one that they got was marked down from $200. Now it only cost $49.99. And that was a deal. Don't you know how long these things will last, said one customer to another behind him in the line. At 50 bucks, this is a steal. When he approached the register and found that his piece of feces had been marked down from $49.99 to a clearance value of $24.99, he practically wept with gratitude. I hope someone was filming it so they could post the footage on the internet later. Of course, the substantial discount meant the feces was fading from the cutting edge for the time being. Not too discouraging to anyone with a degree of patience. Now that it has entered the infinitely revolving escalator of fads, it's only a matter of years, ten at the most, before it becomes all the frothing rage again. A lotion was still in the makings at the time, the details kept low-key, and there were skits mocking the feces that hadn't even aired on TV yet. Once some belligerently wealthy ex-actress designed her own line of earrings based on the fecal craze, culture critics nationwide declared this to be the dried remains of an idea passed down through the trend mill. The product landed with suburban high schoolers who had delusions of grandeur. They would use it as another icon by which to rate their peers. Girls without feces earrings didn't get invited to slumber parties. What could a girl without her own feces possibly have to say anyway? The right-winged parental units of the country volleyed wildly to the other side of the spectrum once the feces became normal, and it was a regular stocking stuffer that year. In December, you could buy it in bulk and save 10%. Some people disapproved of this hoarding of all the feces, but the parents hollered back that they had worked their ass off for 15 years after busting their ass in college, and no one was going to take away their right to make sure their family was happy. Every now and then, fights broke out, even in department stores. There were thefts that lent themselves to drama, but no one reported these things. The media didn't care. The artful and beautiful displays were not always a positive, you see. As Lauza says in the Dao De Jing... Amass a store of gold and jade, and no one can protect it. There were thefts from those who dared shovel the matter into their pockets or purses. There were fights over quality and pricing. There was that legal battle over ownership graciously jamming the courts. Even so far as the drug culture went, you could find yourself a few shivering, skinny kids around any city block, trying to freebase it every now and then. Called shitheads, these comprised a level regarded as the new low. Sometimes creeps still showed it to girls on first dates in order to impress them. Sometimes it worked. After all, that had been $200 once. Other times it didn't work. Oh my god, you still own feces? I don't know anyone who still has feces. Haven't you seen the new lip plates from the Omo Valley? Oh man, I got mine in red. It had been worn on a supermodel's ears or something like that once. People used to discuss it on the radio in the morning and girls used to judge each other based on the texture of their displays, the size of their earrings, the cost of the perfume. Men wooed women. Celebrities cracked jokes. Children in desolate villages filled crates. Villages tried to revolt and were silenced. Priests didn't know if they should atone or feed their families. At least half a dozen tribes were lost or bought and traded like laminated cards. Meanwhile, Eileen Mosley's stock skyrocketed the end
0: Shane is young, hot, and mostly broke. She's published poetry and runs the webcomic comic bitchface. bitchfacecomics.blogspot.com, hoping to live in someone's attic for no rent and achieve posthumous fame. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.